This podcast contains sensitive content, which some may find disturbing. Information shared here should not be construed as medical advice. If you or someone you love needs help with trauma, chronic pain, or anything else we discuss here, please seek out a medical professional. All resources shared are for entertainment purposes only. All content represents the opinions of Kim and Anna and any special guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions of any organizations they work for. This is not ideal, but we're going with it. A mother-daughter podcast about chronic pain, trauma, mental illness, and more. Kim is a trauma therapist and certified addiction counselor who lives in Pennsylvania, USA. And her daughter, Anna, is a scoliosis sufferer and trauma survivor living in the tropical north of Australia. Join us each week as they discuss topics from their life experiences. Welcome to the show. Hello and welcome. This is Not Ideal, but we're going with it, the podcast. I'm Kim and I'm the mom. And I'm Anna, I'm the daughter. And I want to start off this episode especially because I was rereading a book, one of my favorite books this morning. Ooh, okay. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Byrne, the same guy who did uh, Around the World in 80 Days, if you know that one. And what I want to say... is this <laughs> and this is i have to admit to not having read either of them but i'm really looking forward to your insights on one of them <laughs> okay good <laughs> so under the sea no 20 20 leagues under the sea wait, it's about this first of all wait first of all we decided we were going to record and we were not going to have any edits and obviously <laughs> we're off to a rock she rolling puts start much here on me, you guys <laughs> she, she's oh, cracking <laughs> She's cracking under pressure. <laughs> I am totally... Try to talk in an Australian accent. That always sobers you right up. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, I might. All right. So in this book, it's about a guy who... It's about a professor who gets called to investigate, go on this uh, expedition on this ship uh, through, through I think, the Mediterranean Sea. Oh, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong about which sea, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, <laughs> my word. This is a phenomenon. A phenomenon. I'm on the edge of my seat so far. It's really making me want to read the book. <laughs> it gets called to investigate a phenomenon, this monster that they think is in the sea, right? And so he gets on the ship with his loyal assistant, whose name is Salil. The professor's name is Dr. Aranax, just FYI. So the professor and his assistant, Salil, they get on the boat. There's this huge ship and they come across, they come across the monster, right? And there's, I think, a storm going on and the whole, the whole uh, ship starts getting tossed and turned and the professor has attached himself to the thing so that he doesn't, to the ship so that he doesn't get thrown off. <laughs> I can, I can hear my mom laughing at me as I'm trying to get this out. And so he's strapped in. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Maybe you should get the book and read it to us from page one. Start with the uh, start with the prologue. Here's the important part. Here's the important part. Oh okay. my word! So the long and short of it is, I've already told you the long. Here's the short. Too late. So he gets thrown. Okay, he gets thrown over the ship by the turbulence. So he's in. So he gets tossed violently over. He's in the water. He feels like he's drowning. Wait, wait. I thought he was tied to the ship. He was, but it came undone. He just he flew off. Okay. That's so everybody on the ship is thinking you missed he's that safely. Part. Okay, 
Everybody on the ship is thinking he's like been strapped in just like everybody else, but in all the hubbub, he got tossed in, in all the waves coming over the side and all the ship going side to side. He got thrown over. I got it. So now he's in the ocean on his own. Okay. The water is coming over his head. He feels like he's drowning. He's floundering in the in the ocean. And he sees that the ship is just going. And he's yelling after this ship. Come back. Come back. I've been... I'm not there. Come back. I'm gone. You need to come back for me. And nobody's hearing him. And he's just seeing... He's like drowning watching this ship just completely not even care. And nobody even notices that he's gone. And he's panicking. And as he feels, as he feels the water start to come over him and he, and he starts to go down, all of a sudden he feels an arm. And in the book he says, is it you? You? Hmm. And then the next thing you read in the book is his faithful Salil saying back to him, it is I and awaiting master's orders. And Aww. just the way that it portrays it in the book of this man, well, really on the brink of death. And all of a sudden, so sure that he had been totally abandoned. Mm -hmm. But no, there is this guy who has been with him. Mm -hmm. That's his person, you know, the person that he needed. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the way that his assistant, his assistant had not been thrown overboard with the professor. The assistant says, you know, because the professor, he says, were you also thrown overboard? And he says, no, but I saw you get thrown overboard and I jumped after you. And, mm. and the professor says, he writes in the book, the way that Salil said it, it was as if it was the most natural thing in the world hmm. for him to have just jumped overboard. Yeah. Like they have, no, now they're both drowning. Now keep this in mind. In the book, it's clear. They're now both floundering. They didn't bring anything with them to save them. Right. And what ends up happening is that the monster, which is actually a submarine. Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. This all happens in like the very first chapter. But the submarine, or the very first couple of chapters. The submarine then saves them. So they both obviously survive. Otherwise, it'd be a pretty crummy book if both the main characters died in the first. Or chapter. very short. <laughs> short, sad story. Something that my explanation of the story is currently horribly lacking. But my point, here's what I wanted yes. to talk about. Thank you. Is that when you are in the midst of trauma, a very, just a base, like primal need for your person shows up. Sure. And it's got to be... A specific person. This is my belief. This is not, this is not like proven or anything. This is what I believe. Okay. When you're in the midst of trauma, there is a specific person or maybe a very small specific group of people, any of which, any member of which might satisfy the need, but you need a very specific person. And if it's not the specific person that shows up, you can end up feeling just as alone as if nobody showed up. Mm -hmm. That's what I believe. So it needs to be someone who's for you, right? Yes. Who would sacrifice everything for you, really? I think that it needs to be somebody With you trust. With your illustration. Yeah. I think it needs to be someone who's been loyal in the past enough for you to know yes. that you really can trust them. Ah. Because in those moments, I think that your primary instinct is to defend yourself and to try to... Ooh, sure. Yeah. Sure. And to try to protect yourself in any way you can. And I think the last thing you're going to want to do is to add in another unknown variable, as in another person that you're unsure whether they're trustworthy. So I think the only kind of help you're going to be able to receive is from a person whom you know you can trust. Now, admittedly, there are people who can enter into your trauma that you don't know that are just immediately trustworthy maybe because of how they came into it or because you just 
can sense that their character is one that is trustworthy. So I'm not discrediting those kind of helpers, but I just think that there is something about having that person there that you already know that you can Mm -hmm. trust, the person that you need, the person Mm -hmm. you're crying out for, that you say, is it you? Hmm. You, you know? Mm -hmm. Like not, is someone there? It's not, is there somebody? Is it you? You are, it's you. I've got you in my mind and I need it to be you. Who's there for me? Wow. That's what I think. What do you think? No, I think that's very powerful. And I was just thinking that sometimes the position of the person can instill that trust or it's at least supposed to like a EMT Mm, or a police officer. They can have like a credentials of trustworthiness that way. Yeah. Right. Because that, that is what their job is supposed to be all about. So it's just sort of an assumed ability to trust. Of course, that doesn't always work out, but yeah, so true. I like how the author said, is it you, not who is it? Yeah. Um, That the person in the trauma was actually looking for a specific person. person. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. totally. And you know what? Mm -hmm. The only thing though, that makes me cry, like tears of actual sadness and emotional, emotional sorrow is when I think to myself, I want my mom and you're not there. Aww. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is a pretty, a pretty relatable experience that a lot of people have. It, it definitely. brings back to mind something dad and I were just talking about when we were first married, our first year of marriage, every morning when I would just be coming up out of sleep, I would say, mom, <laughs> every morning in what? our new marriage, it was just, it was just dad. Yeah. When I would come out of sleep in the morning, I would call out for my mom because that's what I used to do when I was a kid. And oh. dad would be standing there and say, no, it's just me. And I could not stop myself from doing that for almost the whole first year of being married. So really, that's so interesting. I've never heard so, that before. I know it would make us laugh, but, and I would get so mad at myself because I, I could hear myself saying it, but I couldn't stop it. Even though I could know in my head, I wasn't in that house anymore. I just couldn't, I couldn't stop myself. That's so interesting. So I would say, for, Mom? for me, it more manifests when I'm having a particularly hard time with something like maybe I've had a flashback or something or a hard day with my pain or anything that makes me need my person more. Uh, normally it manifests for me in having dreams about either you or I leaving the other one behind. So like recently I had a dream that, um, that you were on a, actually this relates quite perfectly to what I was talking about earlier, but you were on a cruise ship and you left me on the dock and you just kept sailing away. And I was like, come back, mom. And you just kept, you just kept going. My husband is also my person. Mm -hmm. I feel like most of us have in our minds, in the thick of it, in the thick of the horror, Mm -hmm. most of us have in our minds like one, maybe two people who we just want there with us more than anyone and who we just desperately hope for, Mm. you know? And when they're there, the most powerful thing. When they're not, it compounds the trauma, I think. Ah, So, so much more. Sure. That's a great point. Yeah, you think so? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Here's another one. I don't think that it's just being alone that can compound the trauma. You know, like if nobody shows up, that it makes it worse. Mm -hmm. I think that if you have a person there who isn't the person you need, like if it's just a random person or if it's someone you don't already know you can trust, Mm -hmm. if it's someone who's there saying you're not alone, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the same effect. It does it. And in fact, it might not have any effect. I think that you can really feel just as alone if it's the wrong person Mm. as you would if there were no other person at all. Hmm. Yeah, sure. 
That's what I think. Yeah, I think that is definitely... For instance, hold on, I have a perfect example. (laughs) Yes? When I was in hospital, I remember a nurse showing up during one of the absolutely horrific moments of my multiple hospital stays. You had gone to go get help. It was when I had fallen down. The call don't fall episode. The call don't fall episode. Yep, you can hear all Mm -hmm. about that in our previous episode in season one. Mm Mm-hmm. But I had fallen, this was just after my surgery, I'd fallen in the hospital and it it was in the middle of the night and only mom was there. (laughs) My faithful, my faithful mom. And she had to go get help. There was nothing else she could do. And she had to leave me to go get help. And I was laying there alone. And I totally had that same moment of needing only one specific person or or only one or two people could possibly have helped me not feel horrified and alone and terrified in that moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the next person to come around the door was not my mom coming back, but it was the person she had gone to get because the nurse that she had grabbed was running in front of her. And so when I was looking at the door and I was you know, obviously in excruciating pain and also terrified that something horrible had just happened. You know, we were all expecting the worst. And I was just staring at that door. I wasn't even breathing. I was only breathing the very like teeny tiny little shallow breaths because of how messed up everything in my diaphragm was at that point after falling directly onto my newly reconstructed spine. And I was just staring, you know, my face was straight towards the ceiling and my eyes were just pinned to the side of my face staring at the door. And the first person to come around the door wasn't my Salil. It was the nurse. And it wasn't, it didn't help me. It didn't help me in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then mom came around the corner. And then suddenly then I felt like I was going to make it again. But but when it wasn't the right person, it didn't help. Mm. You know, I can remember you actually, I didn't want to leave you because I knew I would have to run far away to get somebody. And I can remember you forcing me to go. Do you remember that? I do. I was just standing over your body and saying, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should move you. We were just horrified together. And so you were like, go, go get help. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember that and how hard that was to say go. To leave you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I don't really like thinking about that time. It's a little bit helpful. It puts it in perspective to know that once you actually did go get the help, it wasn't just that one nurse who came back. It was six enormously beefy male orderlies who then had to come. My whole team came. Who had to come and pick me up, which at that point I was more than half naked because I had just been in a little, I had just been in my little hospital gown with nothing underneath and I'd fallen quite horribly. So then uh, these six huge (laughs) young guys came in. I was like, Hey, (laughs) thanks for the help. You were still also puking as I recall at the time because that was what caused it. But anyway, it was yeah, not it good. Wasn't a good look. It, no. it wasn't a but good anyway, look. Anyway, the, the <laughs> book, right. it's really interesting because it does show that insight that what he said was not who is it, but is it you? And I do think it also yeah. speaks to the importance of having safe attachments in the day-to-day because when crisis hits is not when you want to be working on the safety of your relationship. Because if the relationship mm-hmm is one where you're going to feel criticized or judged or not believed or not cared for or not listened to or heard in mm-hmm. the way that you can hear someone when you're attached in a safe way to them, where, you, where you're able to prioritize them and believe them. I think it can be very, very upsetting. And you're, you're really just not in that space to navigate that when you're in trauma. You just need an ally. Hmm. You need someone who's going to say, you're it, you're the priority. What do you need? I believe you. 
Mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm here. I believe you. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't have to. You don't have to work on that. You you can't work on that when you're in a crisis or in trauma. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that attachments are so key to um, surviving trauma and even recovering from trauma. Yeah. I totally agree. And you know, the other thing, the other opposing side of that same experience is when you are physically near uh, to a person going through a kind of experience like this, when you have to step away and how unnatural that is, if you are securely attached to someone going through trauma, but in order for their own good, you have Mm -hmm. to step away. Just the the kind of tension Mm -hmm. that arises inside Mm -hmm. you and also in your relationship I know probably the number one that you and I experienced was when I got rushed to the hospital and they all said, she's dying. They were trying to take all my blood and, and infuse me with a bunch of stuff. And you had to step away and all and let all the doctors in, which I'm sure is a pretty, I mean, not super common experience, but for someone who's had a loved one in hospital, who's been near death at some point, having to step away from that loved one and let all the doctors in. Actually, said, no. And I've said this before. That was a relief when they were frantic. If you can't help, and you're frantic, you want other people to be frantic who can help. So that was actually a relief for me. I was like, take take it because oh, I can't it? stop this, whatever it is. I'd already been trying to stop it for the hours that had preceded and the, mm. the terrifying car drive there. So, and the terrifying mm. <laughs> waiting room stay in the emergency department uh, with you puking <laughs> all over and screaming and oh my yeah. word, I was so glad. Finally, they had like, five or six people again in that setting, not when you fell, but when you were brought back yeah. to the hospital. Oh, so it was actually a relief? Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't have to leave the room. They just said step back. I still was there. But it was a relief. It was almost like a dissolution of your uh, responsibility of, of yeah, the situation. Yes, it's like do something. Do something. You know, your, your whole being is crying out. Hmm. Once you're in the presence of people that can do something, you want to just scream that out constantly, but you know huh, you can't because they'll they'll take you away. (laughs) So they're finally acting and responding in the way that I knew needed it needed to be, but they had to see the results first, right? Like, so first they tried to give you um, a strong painkiller and all that. And when they saw your your heart rate and your blood pressure uh, go, and they just knew we were in trouble. And when they actually whisked you away after I said, you know what, this is it. And it's going to be okay. You're going to you might not make it. And what you actually said was, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but you said, sweetie, pretty soon here, you're going to close your eyes and you're going to be gone and that's Mm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And it's all going to be okay. And then that was, that was one of the last things I heard you say then before they 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 took you, when they took you somewhere where I thought, okay, they're going to get serious about this that was actually a relief but it was i mean obviously horrifying at the same time yeah but. oh man <laughs> wasn't really planning to go down that uh that memory lane here at eleven forty six p.m uh on a thursday but well it made me realize this um unresolved statement of do something do something it was still kind of in me i it kind of felt good to say that Hmm. because I never got to say that. I was so worried about getting too much attention on me by screaming at everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Yeah. but but they weren't moving fast enough in the beginning. (laughs) They weren't, they weren't worried. They had to see the numbers. And I knew that. And I knew as soon as they saw what was happening, that they would get frantic, but it, it took a minute. And that that's probably that, a pretty common experience. That I think for me is why no medical professional will ever be my salil. 
because and this is a controversial statement and I know that we have a lot of a lot of loyal listeners who are healthcare professionals and I want to just say I commend you and I love what you do and I know that you guys are honorable and noble and sacrificial and I love that thank you continue to do what you do but for me Ever since that experience, they're just health professionals aren't trustworthy to well, me because they had to wait. No, because they had to wait and see the numbers. They didn't trust me right, when I right, said I need help now. And they almost killed me because of that's it. because they're trained not to panic. Right? Exactly. They're trained they... not to trust me <laughs> when I say I need help. <laughs> well, they are they trained. Panic- yeah. If they they are trained to triage and they triaged incorrectly, their training failed them. And more importantly, it failed me. <laughs> Listen, you're never going to convince me that they were doing the right thing when no, they screwed no. me over. I know, but they can't, it, they can't keep doing their job if they panic every okay. time at the same level that Again, the mom is panicking. I'm not criticizing their no, character. Okay. All right. It's not, a, yes. it's not a character failing. Yes, it's the you. profession. It's the right professional failing. So in the same way that that we just discussed about how you can have personal trust with somebody, right? Or you can have professional trust with somebody like how you professionally trusted right. the police officers and the EMTs that came to help you in your accident, right? That I also put my professional trust in the people in the emergency room that day. And that trust was misplaced that day. And it wasn't because of a character failing. It was because of the institutions that had been put in place in order to make them more trustworthy just so happened to not do what I needed to that day. But it, but yes. a break occurred that I don't think will ever be healed. I think that's an interesting point because in my accident, it was my friend coming up who was panicked that actually felt more comforting and who started just praying and praying. And, and the technicians were like, can you step aside? Like they were very calm and doing their job to try to free me from the car, which I also needed. But I also really was helped by the other person that was like, oh my gosh, what has happened? This is horrible. I don't know what to do. All I can do is pray, you know, and just crying out on my behalf. That was, yeah, that was in that moment what I needed. And so sometimes I think that gets to, again, it gets to attachment. You have to, the person has to feel seen, even though it may mean you have to disrupt your own kind of calm. I mean, that's really what empathy is, isn't it? Is another person experiencing your same emotions with you. So when we are frantic about what we are experiencing, you know, the pain or the, the fear or just the horror that we're going through, when we can visibly see another person going through it, that is just immediate trustworthiness because that's real empathy right there. Right. So when you saw your friend panic with you Mm -hmm. over you, that means you're both panicking about what's happening to you. You're both experiencing the same emotion about what's just happened. She's validating or even embodying my experience. So I feel seen without needing to explain it or, or justify it or any of that stuff. I feel seen. Now, I think it is important that, you know, one of you try to then walk toward help or walk toward wisdom. But I think that initial feeling of being seen is important that, oh my gosh, it's like what we talk about with little kids who say there's a monster under my bed that you don't just start going into a philosophical conversation about how monsters don't exist. You, you say, wow, a monster. Oh my word. How scary, how terrifying for you. You know, you try to, you try to connect first and let them see that I get it. There's a part in me that knows what it's like to be scared of a monster. And I can embody that for even just for a few moments. And then we can walk toward wisdom and toward help and say, let's go look, let's check. Yeah. Let's do the steps toward 
towards safety, but you can't skip that first part I think, or the person ends up feeling alone. Yeah, I think that's very mature of you to only need it in the beginning for the connection. For me, the second a person disconnects from the from what I'm feeling about what I'm going through, that person is no longer with me in the water. That person has now gotten back on the boat and I am still in the water and I'm not... Well, with... As soon as another person gets gets calm and is fine about what's happening to me when I'm not, it's, it's a no, lot harder, no, no. I think. Well, I think in your situation, there was a much more prolonged need for people to be upset and moving and frantic and, you know, upset, upset, upset. In the case where it's a monster under the bed, where there is no actual danger, where the person with the fully developed prefrontal cortex knows that there is no actual danger. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? But but in your situation, there was actual danger for a prolonged period of time. Hmm. And so you need that connection of saying, this is terrible. This is upsetting. I w- Someone do something, someone help, do something, do something. You know, you need that prolonged until you are actually able to feel like, okay, I can take a breath. But that it, that went on for days for you. It did. And I'm not ready to think about that again tonight, but I do have, okay. <laughs> but I do have a question for you. And that is, yes. what do you think happens when Salil, when, when no Salil shows up, when you actually are just left to, to drown, when you don't actually physically die? Like if you, if you have the trauma happen and nobody comes, nobody even kind of comes, like you are just entirely left on your own to deal with your trauma. What what do you think the impact is? Well, it really depends on what the trauma is and who the person is, but that's dissociation, right? That's how, for example, why little children develop these uncanny abilities to actually leave their own body and observe themselves. There's something about the way that we have been designed to cope that you can actually almost become your own person, which is not what you want. Because if that's how I cope, that means I'm almost breaking off from myself in an unhealthy way. That's dissociation. And that can take many forms. As we age, we don't, we no longer have that capability as much unless we've been doing it since we were children. I really think that there's a common experience for people who've been left to go through the trauma on their own and no Salil ever shows up. They become their own person and therefore they remove the need in themselves for another person. Yeah. Which is a critical need. Like that's not one that you can remove and and be fine with not having that need anymore. You need that need and you need it to be filled. And if it repeatedly doesn't get filled or if it doesn't get filled in a really special moment where you, you really need that help and it's, and nobody comes, you just, sometimes you, you try to move on by just never needing a person again. And it's like an extreme independence that takes over. And then from then on, whenever somebody does try to show up in your hard time, somebody who you think you do trust, you can't have them there. You're like, no, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I've got me, myself, and I. I I was the only one there back then. I'm the only one here now. I'm the only one who's ever going to be here for me. Almost to self-protect from that horrible feeling that someone didn't show up or the person that showed up was actually unhelpful. And so that's a little bit like what we talked about with your therapy situation, where I'm having to relearn medical professionals as someone that will hear me and see me. You're relearning that now, and it can get very easily completely off track, right? And I think it depends on who didn't show up and who did show up that impacts that. But yeah, it's a journey back to trusting so that I can attach in a vulnerable way. Yeah, but if I'm 
protecting myself from that disappointment in people, then I can I can just become isolated, which is trauma is an isolating force for that very reason. Yeah, definitely. I just, yeah, I think that definitely the people who do show up and the people who don't show up have a lasting impact on the on the people you're likely to trust, on the relationships you're likely to build there going forward, even on the help you're likely to find, the help you're likely to accept. But I think that if no one shows up, I think that that can damage not permanently. I do believe you can come back from it 100%. Unless you are dealing with antisocial personality disorder, in which I think genuine connection, allowing a person back in to really help you. I think that with antisocial personality disorder, also known as uh, being a sociopath in like pop culture, but in general, I think that you can come back from nobody being there and from really believing that nobody's ever going to be there. But I think it's a really long road. And I think also that our culture is in this, in this swing of saying, be independent, be, <laughs> it's just you. You're, you've got to just love you because nobody else is ever going to love you the way that you need to be loved. And you've got to fill those needs yourself. You've got to love yourself. You've got to be there. You're the only one who's ever going to be there for yourself. And more and more, it's like, geez, our entire, <laughs> our entire generation has been traumatized like people not being there when we needed them to be there. And the thing is, we, we really, I feel like that's the opposite of the direction we should be going in. That's a great we point. We should not be getting used to no one being there. Yeah. We should not be getting used to being our own Salil. Right. We need to understand that Salils do exist. And even though it is excruciatingly painful when you have a Salil and they don't show up. Or when you have a Salil and they show up as a stinker <laughs> and oh. they don't. They don't yeah. show up in a way that, that you expected them to or hoped for them to. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think it's a it's a very compassionate way to look at being a sociopath because obviously something had to happen over and over and over again, typically, for that to break in more of a permanent way. Not that everybody that goes through that becomes, you know, has that part be broken, but it is extreme cases where that that does occur. And so that gives sort of a more of an empathetic understanding of how something like that breaks in a person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> on this that has happy been note. A very, <laughs> yes. Thank you for sharing your book. Thank you for sharing your insight. You're welcome. Um, anything else you want to say? I just want to say the takeaway is if you have been through something like that before, where your Salil has not showed up, there is a good chance it's had a lasting impact on your current relationships. If you're finding yourself feeling those feelings of I'm the only one who's ever going to be able to take care of me. Mm. And it may be if you're sensing now and then almost some self-sabotaging tendencies of sabotaging a relationship before that person has failed you because you are just 100% certain that they are inevitably going to fail you just like the other person did or the other people did in the past. That's really well said. Thank you. There is a good chance that maybe please just consider seeking out therapy because it can really help you with that safe therapist client relationship. There's a good chance that it can help you learn that some people really are trustworthy and can be there every time you need them. And you really need to find that first safe relationship in order to slowly build that belief in yourself back up that maybe you don't have to be the only one who can take care of you. There are other people that are able to be counted on. I love it. That's really, really well said, Anna. Thank you for sharing that today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all for being with us. I'm Kim. I'm the mom signing off. And I'm Anna. I'm the daughter. See you next week or month. <laughs> 
Thank you guys for joining us today. Stay tuned for more podcasts from Anna and Kim on the new series, Not Ideal, But We're Going With It. Also, check out their new website at www.notideal.net.